Hi there. Welcome to the MindRamp Podcast. I'm your host, Michael C. Patterson. In this episode of the Mind Over Muddled series, I will continue to explore why our brains get muddled and what we can do to get them unmuddled and enhance our quality of life as we age. Today I'm going to approach this question from the perspective of Buddhism's Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths are a core teaching of Buddhist wisdom. They concern themselves with how we suffer, why we suffer, and what we can do to free ourselves from suffering, all of which seem like subjects worth investigating. Let me take a moment to put this into context with the overall Mind Over Muddle series. My core thesis is that the two hemispheres of our brain give us two very different perspectives on our reality, and too often they conflict and give us a distorted perspective of what's going on. That's why our minds get muddled. The way out of getting muddled, therefore, is to rebalance the influence of the two hemispheres, specifically making sure that the right hemisphere is kept in charge. So in this episode, I want to explore how Buddhism's Four Noble Truths match up with my hemisphere rebalancing strategy, what I call the hemispheric Gelassenheit strategy. Check out my Mind Over Muddle podcast number 14 called Letting Go and Letting In to learn more about the hemispheric Gelassenheit strategy. In essence, the strategy involves a letting go of unhelpful mental practices and an acceptance of more helpful ones. So, how do the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism match up with my hemispheric Galassenheit strategy? How can we use the principles of the Four Noble Truths to overcome conflict and confusion and achieve greater peace of mind and equanimity as we age? Well, for starters, the Four Noble Truths can help us get a bit more specific about what we mean by a muddled mind. A muddle is defined as an untidy, disorganized, and confused state. So when our mind is muddled, we don't see the world as it really is. We get confused, conflicted, and upset. Now, Buddhist psychologists have been pondering the strange nature of the human mind for over 2,000 years, so they have probably learned a thing or two. They're also pretty good at boiling things down to simple frameworks, like the Four Noble Truths. Fortunately, we can glean a good description of mind muddle from the First Noble Truth, which is referred to by the Sanskrit word dukkha. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, dukkha. Dukkha is usually translated as suffering. So the first of the Four Noble Truths is often characterized as saying that all of life is suffering. That's kind of the baseline state, the starting point, and the three other noble truths flow from this initial and fundamental state of suffering. So the first noble truth is suffering, the second noble truth, Samudaya, speaks to the cause of suffering, the third, Niroda, speaks to the cessation of suffering, and the fourth noble truth suggests a, a path, the eightfold path of practice, that helps us limit our own suffering and the suffering of others. So to paraphrase from the mind over muddle perspective, the four noble truths are about how our minds get muddled, number one, 
two, why they get muddled, three, how we can get our minds unmuddled, and then four, how to keep our minds unmuddled. Okay, great. If we can get these four truths straight, our problems are solved, right? So, let's start with dukkha, suffering. Suffering, suffering, and more suffering. The core state of life on Earth is suffering. Well, okay, hold on a minute. This can't be right. This is an overly pessimistic view of life and one that obviously isn't true. Buddhists, I mean, as a rule, are quite happy, contented people. The Dalai Lama is a cheerful guy. Life can't be about suffering. And of course it's not. So what are they talking about? The philosopher Owen Flanagan makes a useful observation about dukkha in his book, The Bodhisattva's Brain. In essence, he says that the translation of dukkha as suffering is conceptually misleading. It is patently false for Buddhists and for everybody else to claim that everything in life is suffering. A life of nothing but suffering would only be true for those who are pathologically depressed. The rest of us suffer from time to time. I mean, some of us suffer more often than others, but we also, of course, experience fleeting moments of contentment, happiness, even joy. Suffering comes and goes just as happiness comes and goes. Alan Watts clarifies the definition of dukkha by saying that, quote, the point is rather that life as we usually live it is suffering, end quote. Aha! So, The Buddhists are not saying that suffering is the natural and normal condition of life. They're suggesting that we too often live our lives in ways that cause suffering. We do things and think in ways that cause ourselves to suffer and to cause others to suffer. Now that makes more sense. Sure, our minds get muddled more often than we would like them to. We suffer more than we should. Okay, so that's dukkha, the first noble truth. The second noble truth of Buddhism is samudaya, which refers to the cause of suffering. Why do we suffer more than we should? Why does our brain get so muddled? This truth, I believe, offers us a needed turn towards hope and optimism. It suggests that we are quite capable of analyzing our thinking and figuring out what we are doing that causes us to suffer. I've been suggesting throughout the Mind Over Muddle series that the domination of left hemisphere perspectives causes us to get muddled and to suffer. So the next question to be answered is what kinds of left hemisphere perspectives get us into trouble? Now back to the Four Noble Truths. Buddhism usually points to attachment as the root cause of all suffering. We suffer because we get attached to things and get upset when we lose our valued possessions or when we can't attain them in the first place. We get muddled when we get attached to negative thoughts, to faulty concepts, and to unhelpful emotions. Note that attachment to pleasure and pleasing things is just as problematic as is attachment to bad stuff that is obviously unpleasant. Any kind of attachment creates a longing a craving, a kind of lust to keep what we like or to avoid what we don't like. These are afflictive emotions. If we get attached to our morning cup of coffee or cups of coffee, as I am, we get upset when we can't have our usual caffeine spike. We suffer. 
And of course, when we get attached to the accumulation of things and to wealth, we suffer from greed, envy, covetousness, anger, and so on. So this suggests a slightly different definition of dukkha as dissatisfaction or frustration or perhaps craving. It's not exactly suffering, it's more this longing for something that we don't have, want to have. To paraphrase the statement from Watts, dukkha means that we usually live our lives in a perpetual state of craving, dissatisfaction, and frustration. We're always longing for things we can't attain, for more, for better. The grass is always greener on the other side of the hill. We won't really be happy until we get that good job, marry that perfect spouse, have a child, get a promotion, own a Tesla, and on and on and on and on and on. We have cravings to be a better person, more attractive, more charming, more powerful and successful. The Dalai Lama, like many other psychologists, suggests that most of our suffering is self-inflicted and arises from what he, the Dalai Lama, calls afflictive emotions. The Tibetan term for this translates as something like, quote, emotions that afflict from within, end quote. We aren't in pain because a rock fell on our head. We suffer from some kind of self-created emotional response. We don't experience dukkha because of what happens to us necessarily, but because of the way we react to what happens. Our, quote, undisciplined mind, as the Dalai Lama calls it, creates dissatisfaction and frustration when there is no real cause for it. He says that our ego, our mind, quote, under the influence of anger, hatred, greed, pride, selfishness, and so on, is the source of all our troubles, which do not fall into the category of unavoidable suffering, like sickness, old age, death, and so on. Our failure to check our responses to the afflictive emotions opens the door to suffering for both self and others. End quote. Buddhism also points to three poisons that cause suffering, greed, anger, and ignorance. All of these, if you think about them, are emotional responses to some kind of attachment. Ignorance would be attachment to the wrong kind of ideas or to mistaken information. My Hemisphere Gelassenheit strategy focuses on the kinds of thoughts and ideas that we generate when our mind is dominated by our left hemisphere. They tend to lead to distorted perspectives on our lives. So, to recap... Dukkha is the all-too-common condition of suffering, dissatisfaction, frustration, and craving. This condition is caused by an undisciplined mind, a muddled mind, that becomes overly influenced by left-hemisphere mindsets, priorities, and values. Now, to the third noble truth, which is neuroda, or the cessation of suffering. Now we're getting to the crux of the matter. How do we stop suffering? How do we unmuddle our minds? Let's put this into perspective. We just noted that dukkha shouldn't imply that all of life is nothing but suffering. We should also not consider the cessation of suffering to mean that all suffering is totally banished from our lives. No matter what we do, we will inevitably experience some kind of suffering. Loved ones die. The world is a crazy place. 
Shit happens. People get killed and injured all of the time. As compassionate people, we will empathize with others who suffer and will, as a consequence, suffer ourselves. I don't think that noble truth number three suggests that we banish suffering from our lives, but instead that we learn how to deal with suffering in a more skillful way. We will inevitably experience suffering, but we don't need to become attached to it. We're back to that second noble truth. The cause of suffering is attachment. So the way to avoid suffering is to avoid or diminish attachment, specifically attachment to afflictive emotions that cause us to suffer needlessly. So when a loved one dies, we, of course, will grieve and feel the loss deeply. But we can try not to get overly attached to the emotion of grieving. Grief plays an important role in our lives. It has its place. But we can grieve and still get on with our lives. We can grieve without suffering, without muddling our minds. Life can and should go on. Consider the difference between two ways of expressing what is happening. Grief is being experienced, on the one hand, that's kind of a third-person approach, and I am grieving, on the other, a first-hand approach. Both describe an event, an experience of grieving, but the second construction, which is just an artifact of the English language, creates a self that is doing the suffering. The grieving becomes an integral aspect of the person, of us. It becomes attached to the person and the person to it. Grief and self are one and the same. But the other construction, the, the third person, grief happened. The grief is no less real, but it isn't inextricably attached to yourself. This grief can be felt just as deeply, but when you're done with it, you can put it aside without requiring some wrenching assault on our self-concept. You can also pick it up again when needed. The self, like all life, is a constant flow of change. Our real self is not a thing, but a process. It emerges and expresses itself in response to whatever is going on in the present moment. We can find more ease and equanimity when we learn to comfortably flow with this flow of emergent change. We get muddled when we resist the flow of change, when we strive to define ourselves in fixed and unchangeable ways, when we get attached to a concept of ourselves. To my mind, we get ourselves into trouble when we become attached to left hemisphere values and left hemisphere modes of interpreting reality. It's the left hemisphere that has the impulse to exploit, to use people, to make use of the natural world. It reaches out and grabs onto things in order to possess them. It's the epitome of attachment. It is the left hemisphere that creates our ego and therefore to our attachment to our self-concept, to our cravings, to the cravings of our ego. Our right hemisphere is much less grabby. The right hemisphere is more interested in exploring things and, and learning about them. It wants not to possess and clutch, but to join in with the fun, to, to dance and sing. The right hemisphere is perfectly happy to slip into the river and flow with the flow. It suffers no attachment to things, concepts, categories, systems, and so on, which are the creations and obsessions of the left hemisphere. <laughs> 
The right hemisphere is happy with direct experience, which is the state of mind I think contemplative practices are after. We can stop suffering by releasing our grip on the attachments that come with artificial concepts about how life should be and relaxing into an enjoyment of life's wonders just as they are. That's what I think, anyway. The fourth noble truth, by the way, consists of the Noble Eightfold Path, which is a kind of list of virtuous behaviors that presumably will help us live our daily lives in ways that minimize suffering. So you get right concentration, right view, right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, and right mindfulness. These are topics for another day, but you get the point. You're supposed to do everything right. So to summarize my hemispheric Galassenheit interpretation of Buddhism's Four Noble Truths, one, we first have to recognize that we suffer, that our minds get muddled. Two, this happens because we become overly attached to left hemisphere modes of relating to reality and lose sight of more grounded and experiential right hemisphere perspectives. So three, we can unmuddle our minds by loosening our attachment to left hemisphere values and modes of framing reality on the one hand, and by more fully embracing the values and perspectives of the right hemisphere on the other hand. Okay, thanks for listening and for joining me in this exploration. As I've said before, I enjoy the company. Be well. Enjoy. May you live long and live well. Remember, you can help support this work by subscribing to the MindRamp podcast. Thanks. Thanks.